in the scene where Steve Carell faints on his dick, you know, that, that's like, <laughs> it's like he's in heaven. I was mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts. Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be, yeah. and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And this week, uh, because La La Land is finally coming out, we are taking a look at Crazy Stupid Love and Confidence. And to do that, I have returned guest Andrew uh, from the AB Film Review. So thanks for joining me once again, Andrew. Yeah, thank you for having me on this episode to discuss Crazy Stupid Love. Uh, glad you haven't got me on the episode to discuss La La Land. I haven't seen You're it yet, but... terrible person. We'll... <laughs> Starting this early. We'll touch on that later on. <laughs> yes, we will. And I'll probably hang up on you, uh, which is fine. Uh, but before we get into this, uh, why don't you tell people about your podcasts and where to hear them? Uh, so, yeah, I do two podcasts. I do AB Film Review, which is a periodically occurring podcast where me and my wife, Bernadette, review films and stuff like that. Uh, and that's found on abfilmreview.com and where you can also find the other podcast I do, which is called The Last New Wave, which is focused pretty much solely on Australian cinema. And you're actually on a recent episode uh, where we discussed Dark City, which was very recent because we only recorded it last week. <laughs> Obviously. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was just going to say, if you're going to listen to any episode of that show, that's the one That's the one to listen to. Go listen to the one with me on it, obviously. That's All right. Uh, so before we get into the psychology and the movie, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? I do, actually. I've got two two movie recommendations. Only so two? You're... Only two this time. <laughs> only two. Uh, so the first one is, I was trying to think of films that essentially talk about um, confidence and stuff like that. And it was, you know, there are lots of them, but... The one that kind of came to mind was actually a favorite of Stanley Kubrick, which is Albert Brooks's 1981 film Modern Romance, mm. uh, which is this kind of really bizarre comedy in a way where this guy portrayed by Albert Brooks, uh, essentially they break up, him and his girlfriend break up pretty much as soon as the film opens, and he spends the rest of the film trying to get her back. And it's a really bizarre kind of anti comedy romance film a bit like crazy stupid love in a way the other film that i recommend um and mostly because i listened to your episode 42 when you covered this film and i remembered this film pretty much uh when you did the synopsis of it and that is playing by heart oh excellent is, choice that will come up later we will be talking about that later <laughs> so because that, that film has a lot of different characters and stuff like that, and they're all kind of intertwined in certain ways. And just like Crazy Stupid Love, there's a little bit of a twist in it as well, which kind of comes out of nowhere, but makes sense when you watch the film. So yeah, they're my two recommendations. Yeah, so one I haven't seen, I haven't seen Modern Romance, so I put that. And also, uh, people, if you're interested and you're on that website, Letterboxd, I have a list of every movie that has ever been recommended on our show. Uh, so many that I have to watch. So Modern Romance is another one I'll have to watch. But Playing by Heart is, as anyone who knows who has listened to that episode, uh, is one of my favorites. So 
That uh, that is a great recommendation. Good job, Andrew. There you go. I get them right sometimes. <laughs> That's right. Every <laughs> once in a while. All right. Uh, so we will take a break. I'll talk about confidence and then bring back Andrew to talk about crazy, stupid love. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of all this mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave okay so it's time for the psychology section today we're talking about confidence so confidence generally is the state of being certain either that a hypothesis or prediction is correct or that your chosen course of action is the best and most effective when we're talking about the self in terms of self-confidence we have confidence literally in ourself and our ability to do things now, the other side of this, when you go too far, you could call it arrogance or, or hubris. So that's the idea of having unmerited confidence, or we believe that we're capable or correct when we're not. Overconfidence, which Andrew and I will talk about later in the episode, is this excessive belief in succeeding without any regard for the possibility of failing. Confidence can also be this self-fulfilling prophecy as those who don't have confidence may fail or not even attempt because they lack the confidence to do it. And those with it may succeed because they're willing to try rather than the fact that they have some innate ability. All right. So back to self-confidence. Self-confidence is not just belief in yourself or in your ability to succeed. For instance, you can be really bad at, at a certain activity, but be confident in your demeanor simply because you don't put a lot of emphasis on the outcome of that activity. So if you don't ne if you don't dwell on these negative consequences, you can be more self-confident because you're worried less less more about the failure or the disapproval of others following that failure. So you're more likely to focus on the actual situation, which means that enjoyment and actually success in that situation is more probable even if you're not very good at it. Belief in your own abilities to perform an activity comes through usually through successful experience and can add to a general sense of self-confidence. Studies have actually shown a link between high levels of confidence and high earning potential, high wages. So those who self-report they were confident earlier in schooling tend to earn better wages and were promoted more quickly over the life course. So in relation to other people, people may have confidence in other people or forces beyond their control. For instance, you might have confidence in, in the police protecting you. Or you might have confidence that a team you root for will win a game. So faith and trust tend to get intertwined with confidence when used in this sense. From this article from, that's written by uh, Mark White, it talks about confidence and attractiveness and wants to look at, does everyone actually find confidence attractive? So the common wisdom does kind of tell us that everyone finds confidence attractive, but the truth is probably a bit more nuanced than that. So he also talks about what confidence means, which we've basically gone over, but he says there's two ways to, to think about it. The first, more formal version, it's based on believing something you don't know with certainty. 
And the other sense of confidence is one that's uh, usually talked about in articles on dating and attractiveness. It's an awareness of who you are, regardless of how you compare or measure up to other people. It shows people that you're comfortable with yourself, that gives you this charm and easy way of asserting yourself. It also implies that you, you don't feel the need to compete with other people or belittle other people to lift yourself up. So confident people are more willing to actually praise others because they're not worried about making themselves look worse or how they look in comparison to that person. So this author, this author states that the best kind of confidence is like is like when you would when you would study philosophy and they talk about virtues. It's this golden mean, he puts it, between self-doubt and arrogance, which allows the person to live up to their positive traits without bragging about them. But confidence can go wrong. In addition to falling to one side or the other of this perfect middle, this perfect balance, your confidence can also be misguided or mistaken. So confidence can be false. A person can be confident that they're smart or attractive and that people like them, even if they're not. The stereotypical like pickup artist who thinks he's God's gift to the opposite sex uh, is the perfect example. So that's like a false positive. Having confidence about something that isn't true, that is not attractive. But you can also have a false negative. So a person has great qualities but doesn't recognize them. And this is this is the problem that's suffered by people we call self-loathers, who often have really great qualities, but for one reason or another, don't believe in them. The ironic part of this, I, I think, is that both people who are supremely confident and people who are self-loathing are sure of who they are. Who they are. It's just with self-loathers, who they are isn't a really good thing, which makes that brand of confidence a lot less attractive. They are confident in the way that they're sure of who they are, but it's this purely negative view. So this helps us kind of begin to question this this idea that confidence is universally attractive. If we consider less confident confident people, even if they're not truly self-loathing. So would a less confident person find greater confidence attractive in someone else? Maybe, or it could remind them how not positive and not confident they are. And if you're a self-loather, you might look at confident people talking to you or being attracted to you, and you might wonder, okay, this person's really confident and they're really great. What would they ever see in me? Why are they wasting their time with me? We think confident people have their lives completely sorted out. They know exactly what to do and exactly what's coming next, whether it's true or not. So it leaves those of us who are less confident to wonder where they would fit in in the life of a person like that. So it can actually trigger more self-loathing to be around confident people. So that's not terribly attractive either. So basically the author says confidence is a great thing, but in some cases it can actually be really intimidating to another person who lacks that confidence. So it's important to note that like, yes, it's great to take steps to boost your confidence, but if you go too far on that other side, you might actually be alienating people or not getting the best connections in your life. And I think we'll definitely see that in Ryan Gosling's character in Crazy Stupid Love. Okay, so this last article we're going to look at is about self-confidence and performance on tests of cognitive abilities. And this is from Stankov and Crawford. So this study had a couple of aims. One, they wanted to study kind of the structure of self-confidence. And they were going to do that by taking a look at how confident people felt about their test answers and look at it from traditional parameters like the number correct and the speed of test-taking scores on those tests. Secondly, they wanted to look for things that correlated with self-confidence. 
and three, they wanted to manipulate aspects of the test administration in order to study the impact of feedback and see if that gave them information on changes in performance and on those confidence ratings. And theoretically, what they looked at is they wanted to consider the trait of self-confidence within this broad domain of personality and intelligence. So this study involved 271 first-year college students. And they gave them a bunch of tests. The first one was called the Raven's Progressive Matrices. Uh, So in this test, for each item, the student was presented with a two-dimensional array of figures with one missing and had to choose from five alternatives, the figure that would complete the pattern. They're also given a test of uh, of vocabulary. This is a multiple-choice test. They're given a test called Line Length where uh, they give you a perceptual test in which five short vertical lines are displayed in a non-aligned manner on the screen. And all these lines are actually the same length, and except one, which is slightly longer. And they were instructed to give the answer by typing in the number of the line that was longer than the rest. They're also given English and mathematics tests um, as a part of this as well. So, okay, so with all these tests... And for half of the subjects, feedback on the correctness of the response was given after each item to see if that would improve or or make their their results worse as they move on through the tests. And the other half, there was no information provided. So what they found is that confidence ratings from the vocabulary test showed overconfidence, while those from from the perceptual task showed underconfidence. Confidence ratings from the perceptual task revealed this, pro- this poorer discrimination between correct and incorrect items than did those from the other two tasks. So feedback did produce better discrimination and slower responding for the tests, and higher confidence ratings and bias scores were obtained for the vocabulary test as well. So they found correlation between the confidence judgment scores, and this indicates there's a separate trait that will just that they just called self-confidence that is different from the ability reflecting the speed and accuracy of performance on these cognitive test items. So it's something separate. It's not just innate. So in terms of the English self-concept, it was found to have actually very low correlation with vocabulary accuracy and confidence rating measures. So what what this tells us is that being updated on how you're doing, it helps as far as your It helps as far as your performance, but not so much as your speed, but it does help your self-confidence, particularly if you're getting feedback that you're doing well. And the other big thing we find here is that, as I mentioned, this is not just about skill. It's not just like, well, I'm good at something, so I'm going to be confident about it because I'm good at it, and the cycle goes on and on. It's actually this whole separate trait of self-confidence that does help you perform better, but it's not about your ability to do math or to take verbal tests at all. So confidence does really help on performance on tests of cognitive abilities and not necessarily just in social situations as well. All right. So that's it for our psychology section. We're going to take a little break and then we'll bring Andrew from the AB Film Review back to talk about Crazy Stupid Love. Hello, I'm Andrew. And I'm Bernadette and we're the AB Film Review. We're a weekly film review and discussion podcast from Perth, Western Australia. We're a married couple who like to spend our Saturday evenings avoiding reality by discussing and often arguing about the latest films and some classics. And getting closer to divorce. Uh, you can find us on the Podbros Network at podbros.com, also on Twitter at AB Film Review, Facebook AB Film Review and our website abfilmreview.com. That's a lot of ABs. That's it. 
All right, we're back to talk about the movie. It's time to talk about Crazy Stupid Love. So, Andrew, what is your history with Crazy Stupid Love? Uh, my history with it was uh, I went and saw it opening weekend here in Perth. And um, being the hyperbolic person I am, I walked out of the cinema and said, that is the best film I will see this year. I will not see anything better than this film. And, of course, it came out in, I think, July, August in Australia. So there was still a good few months of the year left. It did make my top 10 of that year, but uh, was not number one. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's still still a very good film. Um, and, you know, it's it's a good film. I enjoyed it when I first watched it. And I'm curious to hear uh, how you came to it as well and also how you've felt at its age because it came out in 2011. It's, you know, quite a few things have happened in the world between 2011 and 2016. So, yeah, I'm curious if that's changed your perception of the film at all. Yeah, um, I didn't see this movie in the theater. I saw it when it first came out on video. Uh, because like when I saw when I saw the trailer, I was like, "That looks cute," and that was kind of it. Like it didn't really grab me in a way. And this was kind of before I was seeing everything that came out in the theater. I was, you know, much more much more picky or much more lazy or something, and wasn't seeing every other movie. So so I had missed it, and then saw it on video and was totally charmed by it and loved mm -hmm. every second of it and you know i think if i had known just uh just kind of everyone who's in the cast i probably would have seen it in the theater but it's one of those where it was like i think it was all you really knew was uh, most of the trailer i think just showed uh emma stone and ryan gosling for good reason because they're because they're great together so i saw it on video and i loved it and it's one of those movies i find myself putting on a lot like it's it's a really good movie kind of for any mood and I'll I'll sometimes just have it on in the background because it's it's just it's a charming fun movie and also has some real moments that move you. I think it would be easy for this movie to be really just very surface level and it never stays there which which is really nice. So I kind of fell in love with this movie and it it's one of those that for whatever reason it stands up to rewatch for me. So I and hmm. I didn't have any issue with it as I was watching it this time regardless of uh kind of what's going on in the world. I think sometimes when things are going on in the world that aren't so great this is exactly the type of movie that you want to put on. Sure, I mean for me uh, not to go on a tangent straight away, but the film, the reason why we saw this opening weekend was because both Burnett and I are huge fans of uh, Glenn Ficarra and John Requa's first film, which was I Love You, Philip Morris. And mm, that's that, a good me, one. Everything, yeah, everything that you've just said about Crazy Stupid Love applies to uh, I Love You, Philip Morris for me. It's a film that I put on regularly. I get a little bit choked up sometimes. I think it's hilarious. I I think it's one of Jim Carrey's best performances. Yeah. I think it's a great film. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And they're good directors, I think. Yeah. You know, except for Focus. Uh, so <laughs> you knew I had to. I wasn't going to let that go because that movie is <laughs> terrible. Um, so uh, speaking of the directors who you just brought up, that's actually a perfect transition. So what did you think of the directing in this film? Uh, it's pretty impressive because, yeah, I mean, as you said, there's a lot of people in this film and there's a lot of plot threads and there's a lot of things that go uh, that are going on in it. And essentially, if it's a if there was a lesser pair of directors, this kind of thing could fall apart. And, you know, the, I was afraid that it could easily fall into something like the, uh, you know, New Year's Eve kind of thing or the Mother's Day kind of films the um, mm. Gary Marshall kind of films. That's right. that's what this kind of film feels like it should fall into. But fortunately enough, it doesn't. And, you know, it's good directors. 
and good writing as well by Dan Fogelman, which we'll surely we'll get onto in a moment. But the directing manages to wrangle all of that, and also most importantly, knows how to use you know performances from Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, Julianne Moore, uh, you know even Kevin Bacon and right. Emma Stone, of course. Um, it manages they manage to know how to use their strengths even better, you know, or more applicable to their character actions. And I find it really interesting for Steve Carell's performance here specifically is that this is kind of a transitional phase for him uh, from the comedy to the drama stuff. And I think that it really helps that, you know, Glenn Ficarra and John Requa had directed this so well to be able to monopolize on Carell's comedy skills, but also to kind of provide a drama, you know, element to his performance that maybe somebody else may not have been able to to pull out of him. Right. Um, so yeah, it's good directing. Yeah, I agree. I think I think you really hit the nail on the head of, of what's so impressive about this movie is that uh, there's a lot of directors who can handle small films, films with just kind of two or three main characters. But I mean, you've got, you know, probably six main characters in this movie, and a lot of them don't interact until the very end of the film. So you can't have a weak link. You can't have a partnership that you don't care about. Because, like, if, say, for whatever reason, you don't care about the Julianne Moore, uh, Steve Carell plotline, then I think this movie falls flat on its face, no matter how good yeah. Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling are. So you really need to balance that. And they did a wonderful job uh, with that. Another thing I really liked uh, is the very opening of this film. All these shots of – basically all these shots of feet in a restaurant, which I thought was – I mean, one, just a really cute way to open the movie, but also, like, visually speaking, like, the visual language of it, like, seeing – how people who are connected and how they are in love, how they look as opposed to our two main characters, which makes the kind of divorce moment in the car a little less shocking because you can see that they're not connected to one another. And I liked, I liked that little touch. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's interesting as well that certainly the, the moments with Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, they are great. Um, but it's curious the fact that, you know, on this particular watch for me, I didn't realize that there is a massive gap in between when they first meet and then the, you know, the main scene where she rushes off to be with him at night. Like there, there is a huge scene, you know, break in between them actually being together. And the film never actually makes you feel like there was a break there at all. Like you've, right. you, you never feel that you've been apart for them, even though Steve Carell's character has somehow managed to sleep with nine women in that period of time. <laughs> no, I won't question it. Um, yeah. Fine. But <laughs> nine, you know, so nine. Yeah. It's, I don't know. And they were all fairly attractive women, you know, I, I, yeah. So, Ryan Gosling is a great teacher. That's, that's what I'm getting out of this. <laughs> <laughs> so actually speaking of Ryan Gosling, that's another thing I found really interesting as far as direction goes is in a lot of movies, you know, we, we talk a lot about kind of the male gaze, right? Like where a camera will linger on a female character, especially on certain parts of her body where it's almost, almost uncomfortable to watch where you're like, guys, you're kind of perving out with the camera here. This is not necessary. And I think if anything in this movie, this happens when they film Ryan Gosling, the way they film him is like in this, in this kind of like, especially his entrance. And there's the shot of him like at the mall uh, when he first shows up to meet Steve Carell. Mm. And the way he enters the shot is this like, 
overtly sexual, like soft focus moment. I found that kind of really refreshing that we get that with a male character. And I think it also serves as purpose because if anything, we're following along with Steve Carell's character there. He's he's more relatable to us than I think Ryan Gosling's character is. So this is exactly strangely who we're kind of looking up to, who we who we are are striving for. So the way they film him, I think, makes perfect sense. But it strikes me as very funny and very different. Every time I watch this movie, is like this is the this is the sex icon in this movie is is Ryan Gosling and not someone like like Emma Stone or any of the other female characters. Well, exactly, and that's the thing is that you you know you need to really fall in love with Ryan Gosling, or at least you need to lust after him because. That is what his character is. His character is essentially just somebody to lust after. And you need to understand why so many women would gladly, you know, when he says something like, do you know what you're doing later? And yeah. the girl says, you know, I'm sure you can probably put a much better clip in there. But, you know, where he says. <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty smooth, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing later? I don't know. I do. Do you? I know exactly. Oh. Seriously? Seriously? <laughs> You asked her out like that? Yeah. And that worked? Yeah. yeah. yeah kind of stupid, but... Wow! Look at you! I feel like I'm going skiing. Did you sleep with him? Jesus, God! Yeah, probably. What? You would? <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you even saying? You see what just happened, Cal? As soon as you opened your mouth, Tiffany started doubting whether she wanted to sleep with you or not. That's probably the meanest thing anyone's ever said to me. No, this is. Your wife cheated on you because you lost sight of who you are as a man, as a husband, and probably as a lover. You're right, that's meaner. And and then he's like, yeah, I know what you're doing later. And then, and like, you need to buy into that. And the way that they shoot is, is really impressive. Now, obviously, people who listen to the Blue Valentine episode know that I'm probably – I'm not the world's biggest Ryan Gosling fan. I don't think he's as talented an actor as everybody uh, thinks he is. But I think, again, comes back to the directing that, you know, great directors are able to get really good performances. Oh, you son of a of- bitch. You dirty <laughs> motherfucker. That was just like – like, I think he's really good here, but it's not because of him. <laughs> like – See what you did. We'll get to that. You just hold your tongue, sir. Uh, the other thing you mentioned earlier about kind of all of these characters intertwining and and it had been a little bit since I'd seen this movie and I forgot how how cleverly they hid Marissa Tomei's character uh, mm. early in the film. And it doesn't stand out as a trick, but the fact that she goes to – that the mother goes to the school because her, her kid gets in trouble and you never meet the teacher. They hide her so you don't see her until the parent-teacher conference. And I thought that was really cleverly done and in a way that I didn't feel robbed. I didn't feel like, oh, we should have seen – this person because we were focused on the kids so we don't hear her voice and then when the mom comes she talks to the principal and it all made perfect sense to me uh but but in and of course in the context of the film she's a really she's a really important character in a lot of different ways but i thought they they did a really good job of hiding her in a way that the audience won't be upset later when she shows up see i i on first viewing i would have agreed with you there on repeat viewings I actually kind of disagree, and it's mostly because they do it twice. Um, they do it with Marissa Tomei's character, and they also do it with Emma Stone's character right. in the sense that you find out that she's 
Julianne Moore and Steve Carell's daughter. And, you know, they, they play it like it's no big deal, even though it is kind of a twist in a way. And, yeah, okay, it's fine. I get that it's done for comedic elements and, you know, there's a big punch-up and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. For me, I think that's probably one of the weaker elements of the film. It really – maybe I'm coming becoming too cynical, but I was like – no, yeah, I don't. I don't think so. you are, but but we will talk about that in the script because mm. I have issues with that too, for sure. Okay, uh, good. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So we'll we'll bench that for the yeah, time yeah. Then. We'll <laughs> we'll table it, but we will get back to it. I promise. Uh, so let's talk about the acting in this movie. So we're going to start with your favorite actor, Ryan Gosling, uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, who are to me just perfect together these two like i it's it's the reason i'm so excited about la la land is seeing them together again because i think they have this amazing chemistry together they really work and i think honestly i mean i like ryan gosling but i think this is i don't know if it's his best performance but it's certainly his most enjoyable all of his bits with steve carell especially uh the the bits when they go shopping together like it is comedy gold like i think he is he is so good here and emma stone is just like charm personified and the scenes that she and ryan gosling have together are fantastic like i really like those performances here what about you yeah i mean they do work well together and there's genuine you know chemistry between the two and that's that's always nice to see that you know you do see two people who are genuinely feeling a bit nervous about flirting with each other uh, you know, and there's there's lust for each other. And that's something that's very, very rare to see on screen because it's hard to fake chemistry and it's hard to fake yes. being interested sexually in somebody else. And I'm sure it's even harder to do it on take after take after take. I think the key here for Ryan Gosling is that he looks like he's having fun. Yeah. You know, in the scene where Steve Carell faints on his dick, you know, that that's like <laughs> – it's like he's in heaven, you know, the look on his face is like, this is great. I've just got, you know, this is, I'm having so much fun. This is hilarious. I'm looking good. And all this stuff is happening. And, you know, you feel that. And he is the energy of the film because, you know, in in the sense that he is, as I was saying before, he's the attractive guy. He's the guy that you, you lust after. And because of that, he is the, the kind of, the energy that boosts the film up in certain ways and, and helps it steer clear of being too melodramatic or too dramatic when it talk when right. you know Julianne Moore and Steve Carell are talking about their divorce. And, you know, I, I love Julianne Moore a lot. I, I think she is great. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that she does really well here is that she gets close to her crying face in some scenes, <laughs> but never goes, you know, never tips over. No offense to Julianne Moore, but Julianne Moore's crying face is, you know, it's not great. Um, so it, I Jesus. think it would have pushed the f- – <laughs> no, I mean in the sense like it works. Like it's it's what somebody who cries looks like. But this sounds terrible what I'm saying, but I think if she, if she cried the way she does in films like Magnolia, for example – in this film, it would drag it down so much. Well, it would be too dramatic for what this movie is exactly. trying to do. You yeah, feel, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. You help me make yeah. sense of what I was trying to <laughs> Instead say. Instead of just saying she has an ugly crying face, which is essentially <laughs> what you're getting at. I, I see you, I, <laughs> Your words, not mine. But uh, I think she is really good here. 
But I think you bring up a great point about Ryan Gosling, like not being the one who uh, who gives the story energy, because not only because, you know, he's funny and he's enjoyable, he's having a good time, like you mentioned. But if you think about it, basically, the most of the entire plot, he is pushing forward, whether it be his tutelage of Steve Carell or his romance with Emma Stone. If you take out Ryan Gosling's character from this, nothing happens. Nothing changes. You know, like he is really the impetus for the story moving forward. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Steve Crow just becomes the sad, the sad guy. Just sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talking about David Linhagen at the bar <laughs> to women who don't want to listen to him. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Steve Crow's really good here too as he well. Is. You know, he he does the sad individual really well and you feel for him quite a bit. And that's that's the key because, you know, out of all the characters, I think he is the, the central character and everybody kind of is an offshoot of him. Right. But if you don't care about him or you had somebody who was less sympathetic in that role, then, yeah, it all falls apart. And that, that kind of comes down to all of the roles except for one particular character. Um, you know, I think that they all work really, really well. I think that Jonah Bobo as Robbie is not very good. I yeah. found him really difficult to watch. I, it's um, interesting. And, For me, he gets less difficult to watch the more I watch the film. The first time he stood out to me as just like, oh, this fucking kid, like I cannot deal with it. And I think it's one of those things that I like the movie so much that it's like, OK, I'm willing to I'm willing to deal with this one thing because, you know, mm-hmm. every 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 movie's got a weak link. And, you know, if your name is Jonah Bobo, you're pretty much destined to be the weak <laughs> link in anything. There's there's only so much you can do. Well, if Josh Groban's better than you in a film, oh, then yeah, that's you know, it's true. not good. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a good point. Uh, and the last person I want to mention, though, is Marissa Tomei. I thought she was really good here. I thought she was really enjoyable. There are, of course, moments of serious melodrama and screaming and yelling, but she's really fun here. And she's had like this really – she's had kind of an interesting career if you take a look at it now. Of course, like, you know, got big uh, and got known and won an Oscar of, of all things for My Cousin Vinny. But is a Deserving really – Oscar. All right. I'm just – all right, whatever you say, buddy. Uh, and I'm not saying it's not. I just haven't looked at the nominees in a while, so I don't know. Uh, but she's she's a really fun comedic actress. I think it, she seems like someone who's game to be in a lot of in a lot of fun roles, and I really liked her here. See, I, I think that she is one of the most underrated actresses and one of the great actresses that we've got that's still working because she is one of the few versatile actresses who can do drama, who can do comedy, yeah. and who can flip it on a dime so perfectly. You know, she's really good here. Um, and, you know, she's in, she's great in a lot of things. And I think that she works so well in the short scenes that, you know, yes, I want more of her, but I understand why we don't have more of her. But I, yeah, I just love her in this film. I think she is great and she's such a joy to watch. Yeah, now you get to watch her in Marvel movies, so have fun with that. Yeah, I will. <laughs> All right, uh, so I think that's it for acting. So let's move on to writing, which we've been kind of dancing around a little bit. And you mentioned this kind of third act switch where, I mean, literally what happens is like, where's our daughter? She's right there. No, our other daughter. And then Emma Stone shows up. Right. Uh, And you mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, another movie, which I love called Playing by Heart, which has something similar where you find out a character is related to another character kind of out of nowhere. But the difference is there are hints in Playing by Heart. 
There's, there's phone conversations, there's interactions. You just don't know who's on the other end of the line. Whereas this comes completely out of left field. And you're just like, wait, what? That okay, I guess. Uh, and it's fine. I mean, it doesn't ruin the movie, but I do think it's definitely the weakest part of the script. But I think the movie is so charming that you just kind of let it go. That you're just like, okay, whatever. This 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 has a purpose. It brings all these characters together, which is what we need. So we'll just go with it. But I do think it is definitely a weakness in the script. Yeah, it is a huge weakness for me. And as you said, you know, other films that deal with similar kind of character reveals in the third act, you know, they there is kind of the the hints along the way. And as you're saying, there's phone calls and stuff like that. Here, there's nothing. And I was even surprised that they had two daughters as well. And I'm like. Well, you know, I'm sure that we saw the other daughter along the way. Maybe I can't remember, but when one daughter appears, and as you said, you know, where's the other one? And it's like, oh no, there's Emma Stone. And it's like, what? You've had two kids? No, I don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't. it's it's kind of it even, especially on rewatch. Like even when you know it's coming, you're just you kind of like kind of have to grit your teeth and get through it because it's like, okay, this is what we need to do to get here, but. But it's it's definitely a weakness. But what's not a weakness is I think the way they handled this whole plot line with this babysitter who is, you know, romantically inclined towards Steve Carell, which would have been really easy for this to be offensive or horrible. But it felt like very, very genuine to me and didn't mm. didn't feel like anyone was being put in a bad position. Like uh, Annalie Tipton's performance, I thought, was actually really good and really sweet, given that she's, you know, trying to seduce her uh, her babysitter, which could be, you know, a really kind of ugly thing to see on screen. I like the way they handled that script-wise. Yeah, I mean, to me, I know it's not a film that you liked all that much more than I did. I, I love it. I think it's a really good film. But to me, it kind of made me think of um, Cafe Society in a way, which dealt with the... Nobody you know, likes cheese. that as much as you. Let's be fair. I liked it. I, have, I just didn't I love have it. I audio recording that Mike says it's good. So, you know. <laughs> well, Mike um, hates a lot of good things. So good luck with true, that. That's true. <laughs> but I guess in the sense that, you know, that didn't work so much for me. I didn't think that that was necessary to be in there. You say, you know, that people may not be offended by it and all that kind of stuff doesn't stop it from being creepy though oh no i think it's supposed to be i think if it doesn't come off as creepy then you start thinking that this would be okay and it's certainly not and she she reacts in a certain way you know she sends him messages saying this is not appropriate i don't think this is good at all but what frustrates me the most is that she still ends up giving him pictures of her topless and it's like okay so if you badger a girl often enough and announce in front of the whole entire school that you love this person. Uh, right. Then no, I think, you... I think the relationship between the little kid and her is creepy, but I think, uh, and I, I'm not really a big fan of like how that ended that whole, like, let this get you through high school thing. That's a little, that's a little off, <laughs> but like the relationship between her and Steve Carell, I think could have been easy uh, to be creepy. Yeah, yeah. I just want to touch on the the kids for a moment as well. Uh, not not touch on the oh, kids. Touch. I, that is definitely <laughs> staying in the episode. That's... <laughs> uh, I want to talk about the kids for a second. There, <laughs> one of the things which I think they could have mined um, the age difference a little bit more for um, would have been be able to show that 
you know, how the the love in the relationship had gradually disappeared. So in the sense that, you know, they're all, they all are quite different in ages. So you can kind of, especially with the, you know, Robbie and the other daughter who I don't know how old she is, but she probably looks about three or four. And, you know, they, they, if this was a darker film or a more dramatic film, then it may lean on the subject that, you know, when they had that daughter, that was probably the last time they had sex. And that was sort of when the relationship lost its spark. Just blaming the children, something. huh? That's just these damn Well, no, kids. not blaming the children, <laughs> but, you know, maybe. Um, <laughs> but other than that, the script is quite good. I think the dialogue is really good. Uh, I think that the, the way that scenes are, are scripted are really entertaining. And fortunately enough, there's no... You know, in films like in films like this, um, sometimes they'll inject some really dirty humor to kind of make it feel a little bit more risky or something like that. And fortunately right. enough, there's none of that here. Like even that aforementioned moment where Steve Carell faints, that's not played for you know, haha, you fell asleep, you know, you fainted on my junk. Uh, right. It's like, and it's, it's like never fun. brought up again. It's just like, okay, that happened. Let's move on with our lives. Like it never, that would have been something exactly. in a, you know, in a kind of gross out comedy that they would bring up again and again. And it, and yeah, it, he and would they have didn't do that. Out his smartphone and right. pictures. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and you bring up the dialogue and I think specifically the dialogue between uh, Steve Carell and Julianne Moore is really, it's really effective and, and really moving. Like it feels like a real relationship. There's, there's a certain amount of humor there, but it's also very serious. Like the, of course you have the, the scene in the beginning where Steve Carell's just like being really avoidant and goes to the lengths of jumping out of a moving car to not have this conversation. But I think the, the conversations that really got me were the um the pilot light scene where he's standing outside the house and kind of guiding her through this it was yeah. a really sweet moment and also the conversation outside of the parent teacher conference where he basically says like that he still misses her but that he's really angry at her and i felt that that felt really real to me that like you can i like a script where you can have more than one feeling at one time that you can yearn for the past but also remember that this is a person who cheated on you and like be able to, yeah. to have that moment. And I think, I think Steve Carell is really good. And the fact that he's not acted out of the park by Julianne Moore says a lot about him here, because it, if you, especially at the time this movie was made before, as you mentioned, he kind of moved into more dramatic stuff. If you told me you're going to have scene partners and it's going to be Julianne Moore and Steve Carell, I was going to be like, I don't know if this is going to work. Cause I don't know if Steve Carell can handle this, but he does a really good job in their scenes together. Yeah, yeah, I yes, yeah. I, I was going to say I think you're forgetting that uh, Julianne Moore. You know, she, I think she she is such a great actress that she has done films where she has been able to compensate for her male actor's performance. I'm thinking of right, but that's what uh, I mean nine, is that she didn't have to. Here, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. I was thinking of like Nine Months and Evolution and stuff like that. But yeah, she doesn't have to here, and and that's the quality of both performance. Right. And yeah, as you're saying that that particular that pilot light sequence is is really touching as well because yeah. of her just standing there and listening to what he's saying, and you know, and then the other key element of that which works so well and is really heartbreaking in a sense is that. You know, she there's a point where he's like, all right, so you've got to put the match in and do this. And then she waits like three or four seconds before yeah. going, oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and, 
you know, again, that comes back to directing and the acting and also the script, of course. They all work so well together because lesser director, lesser actor or lesser script, that would have been, you know, they would have just rushed through that. Right. And Instead of really taking their time. Those, Mm, exactly yeah i agree so here's a question for you about the script so there's there's a one moment in this movie that i'm not i'm not sure if i like or not so there's a moment where steve carell's really sad i think it's after they've had their shouting match about the fact that he's had sex with nine women and he's used his his pickup line that he used on her on someone else which is not really what you want known and he's why and he's going home and it starts raining right uh, mm-hmm. So you have sad man in the rain, which is like the ultimate cliche. And he says, what a cliche. Does that, I'm not just talking about this movie, but in general, does it forgive a cliche if the film calls it out? I mean, no, it doesn't. Because this isn't like, this isn't a meta film. This isn't 21 right. Jump Street or anything like that, where they're constantly making references to, you know, I thought it would explode and stuff like that. You know, that kind of right. thing. That This isn't that kind of film. And it hasn't earned the ability to be able to go to that point. Even though I think his character is really well, you know, and Steve Carell delivers that line, you know, delivers that scene really well. It doesn't stop it from being cheesy and it doesn't stop it from being a cliche. Right. Fortunately enough, it's a short moment. So, right. you know, it passes over pretty quickly. But... I don't know. I think it's forgivable. Right. But yeah, it's still a little bit cringeworthy though. Yeah. yeah. I think, so what did you think? The only other moment that I could see being cringeworthy as far as being a cliche is this whole, it's near the beginning of the film, the speech that Hannah and her friend about, about a PG 13 life uh, as opposed to an R rated life, which feels like I can't pinpoint it, but it feels like I've heard this about a hundred times before. Uh and, you know, I think Emma Stone's performance makes this makes it OK. But like from a script level, I was just kind of like, uh, really, is this what we're doing here? So what did you think about that uh, particular scene? See, I bought that more than the other line of uh, this is such a cliche. I bought that so much more, especially given the fact that she's in a relationship with Josh Groban, who is the epitome of what PG-13 is. You uh, know, that's the worst. Or just PG or G. You know, he's just a, do you guys have G general? Yeah, we have G. You know, we have G. <laughs> yeah, le, le, he's lesser than PG-13. You know, he's such a nothing person yeah. in a sense. So <laughs> I bought that because uh, I've listened to his music once. You know, I, That's one too many thing. times. You're fine. <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I bought that because you understand, you know, I think that was the, the, the benefit of having somebody like him as her partner to begin with because certain audience members who are aware of who he is can come to the film, you know, and have that understanding of what kind of person he is because he's not going to be delivering, you know, a, a multifaceted character. He's there to make a point and prove how oh. noncommittal he is to the relationship and how nothing really happens. You know, he, he is the epitome of vanilla sex. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> There's our sound clip for the episode. All right, <laughs> all right. So uh, let's talk about the production value uh, really briefly. This isn't, of course, a movie that hinges on production value. Uh, and I'm trying to think if there's anything that stands out. I think the only thing that stands out to me is, you know, this is not a big fault, but it does. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of connection between the different locations. It, it, it all feels like okay, and now we're at the high school. 
and yeah. and now we're at home and and now we're at the bar and those and now we're at his apartment but it doesn't i'm not convinced necessarily that it is a connected world it's just like okay fade to black here and then fade up here and that's that's really the only negative i can think of for uh for production value i think all of all of the places they go feel real it just doesn't feel like they have connective tissue yeah i agree but I think that's forgivable in the sense that there is so much going on in this film that there's not enough time for pickup shots and establishing shots. Uh, there's not enough time for that kind of stuff because every moment that you spend on establishing that we're back at the school or, you know, external shot of the restaurant or something like that is a time wasted in getting the story moving forward. So I don't blame the film for doing that. I think that it's a smart right. choice. And this, again, coming back to the fact that the story is so interesting and involving that you don't really care about it because it it moves so quickly and it's so interesting that yeah you're just like all right let's let's carry on with where the characters are going um my only criticism with the production value of this film is such a petty one because it's (laughs) um you know it's something that like only certain people will know and and stuff like that but the climax of this film, which I'm not a huge fan of that whole speech thing, even though it does work pretty well. Um, but the climax of the film has a song, which is called, uh, which is by the Middle East and it's called blood. And it's a song that's about cancer and people dying and, you know, how it's the end of the world and all this kind of stuff. It's a really sad, depressing song, but the music sounds kind of uplifting. So it really bothers me that that was Mm. a song that, they tried that they used as the the closing up song for the film because it kind of, it works against what the film is showing. Again, it's such a small argument against the production value for the film because not very many people would have heard the song. It's by a band that comes from it. As I said, their titles, the middle East, they come from the country of Queensland. So hardly anybody's probably heard of this band, but it bothered me and it took me out of the film. And now all your listeners are going to be bothered when they, I don't think so. Scene. I don't <laughs> think that's what's going to – they would have to like go to the trouble of listening to the song and taking a look at the lyrics. And I don't – you know, I wouldn't certainly go to that much yeah. trouble. So <laughs> yeah, but I, I think – I mean I can't pinpoint exactly when. But I've had experiences like that where there's a song that I know and I know what it is about. And if it's at odds with what's going on on screen and it feels like that's not a choice, that's not something they're doing you know, to be clever. It's just like, oh, it sounded like a nice song. Then you're kind of like, guys – do a little research. Like, this is, this is not what this is about. Like, this song is not about romance. It's about suicide. Like, what are you doing? Like, this is not, this is not working out. So I could see that bothering me if I did, if I did know the song. And you bring up the, the speech, and I'm very torn on the speech because it is very, very stereotypical in this type of movie to have this big moment. To have this mm-hmm. big speech, especially at, you know, a graduation ceremony of all places. I liked it. But I think I liked it against every fiber of my being. It feels like something I would hate. It feels like something I shouldn't like. But I think I think Steve Carell's performance there is actually what pulls it through, like how uncomfortable he is at the beginning and and how you can see, like, in a lot of ways, like he's doing this for his son, like he wants to he wants to try to kind of 
take a step back and create a good narrative for his kid about what love is and about how much how much he cares, despite the fact that the two of them are not necessarily together anymore, he and his wife. So that really works for me, but it does feel overdramatic for sure. So I can see why some people wouldn't like it. And I think if you had if you had a lesser performance there, then it's grown worthy. But I don't think it gets to that level. But the thing is, is it's such a personal thing. It's it's a personal thing that's between a dad and his son. So for me, it would have worked better if it was, you know, the kids graduated and then he's standing there having that talk with him after he's graduated. See, see, I don't I don't think that works because his son is all about his son is a romantic. His son is all about grand gestures. So this moment would mean more to him than a that a one-to-one discussion between the two of them, I think. But that's, that's again, where I have an issue because I don't understand how he managed to get up on the platform to begin with. Like, you know, earlier in the film, we get to see him and he does this whole thing and basically swears more than any kid has ever sworn in a year eight class. Yeah, but he's a salutatorian. It just means he got the second highest GPA. Just because he cursed in class doesn't mean he's not smart. Doesn't mean he can't pull the grades. Yeah. I don't know. I, it just, I mean, that is what happens. That's who gives the speech is the two, the two who do the best, the valedictorian and the salutatorian. So uh, they could have done more in the movie to show that he was, you know, a student who, who did really well and they didn't bother to do that. So it did, it does take me by surprise whenever they announce that he has done so well, because the only thing you see in class is him calling everyone a bunch of assholes. Like that's, that's all you get. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, okay, <laughs> sure. Um, but I guess people who are cynical and who are angry. We call uh, them Andrew. Think, Let's, we just call yeah, them Andrew. <laughs> well, I, I think there was a Facebook post or something about it where they said that those people are the most intelligent. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, you can prove anything with statistics. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. Uh, and remember, they're talking about people in general, not you. I just want to make that clear that <laughs> you were not studied in this <laughs> In this particular study. So you might be, but you might not. I mean, you've got some questionable tastes. So I don't know about that old intelligence thing. We'll we'll, we'll see how that turns out. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's talk about our favorite scenes. So what's one of your favorite scenes from Crazy Stupid Love? Oh, my favorite scene, hands down, is the scene where uh, they go to meet the teacher at school. And mm. obviously Steve Carell's character realizes, hey, I had... Uh, one night stand with this woman and I didn't call her back and I just love Mirosa Tomei's performance there because it's just so great and it's and again there's there's a heart behind it as well because she's angry and she's up she's hurt this yeah person. yeah this person that she had a connection with you know is standing right in front of her with his wife and the connection and- was based on honesty like that's exactly. what she really yeah. liked about him and it ends up like no uh, you you were dishonest in saying you were going to call me back and you never did. So now I can't trust anything that you said. Yeah, and it's very easy for what she says in that scene to be over the top and, you know, one of those kind of laugh out loud moments. And it's very funny. But again, Marissa Tomei brings that humanity that to that role and right. grounds that scene really well. So that's that's my favorite scene. I think there's just a, a wonderful scene. And it kind of encapsulates what the whole film is about as well, um, being surprised or being, you know, shocked at somebody else's actions because you thought you knew them so well because of the right. honesty that 
you had in a relationship. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because you, you kind of get the the other side of that, the kind of sorrowful side of that in, in the beginning of the film when uh, Julianne Moore admits to to cheating on Steve Carell's character. And like you, he thought he knew her. And even if things were bad, I don't think he ever thought that it would go that route. You know, so you, mm. you he gets the other side of it, uh, which which is interesting. Uh, one of my favorite scenes is kind of a sequence of scenes. It's it's, uh, you know, the proposal that Emma Stone thinks she's going to get and her uh, drinking gin despite hating it and all leading to kind of the Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling sequences uh, at his home, which which are just wonderful. It's the first it's the first moment of reality we get from Ryan Gosling's character. Uh, because he finally has someone who will call him on it. It's not just someone mm-hmm. who's like, oh, well, he's really attractive, so I'm going to go home with him. He's really charming. She is smart enough to kind of see through everything that that he does. And I, I you know, you can kind of see it coming, but I love that it ends with, with him falling asleep on her, you know, where, yeah. you know, he, she has the PG-13 moment, but it's the other way around. And I and I think Emma Stone is is really in her element in these scenes. Like she gets to be sexy. She gets to be funny. She gets to be charming. And it's all in the period of like basically 10 to 15 minutes. And I don't think there's a bad note struck between them in that entire sequence. No. And, you know, it helps as well that, you know, she she is such a like she's so giddy in that mo- in those moments as yeah. well. And you you buy that that you know she is pushing herself into a, a, a you know an area that she's not familiar with or really not comfortable with and and that goes to the theme that you know this episode is based on which is confidence and I think it's it takes that confidence to be able to do that and Emma Stone really pushes that and and delivers it really well and it's impressive as well that you know I don't think that she'd really done much prior to crazy crazy stupid love you know, she had done, but nothing that kind of cemented her as somebody to keep an eye out on. And right. I think this film really, she managed to do that. I think it was Easy A and then this. And I think she did a great job here because she really cemented herself as, as somebody to watch. And it's because yeah. of those scenes that she's in with Ryan Gosling that she was able to do that. So it's impressive. Yeah. yeah. And of course, we mentioned, I kind of mentioned already, but I think all the scenes at the mall with Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell are just comedy gold. I think uh, I'm, you know, Ryan Gosling was in a movie this year called The Nice Guys, which a lot of people were really kind of amazed that he was such a good physical comedian. Um, But I think if you take a look at, at those scenes with Steve Carell here, I think I think you could see it. I think it's it's not as uh, slapstick as maybe the nice mm-hmm. guys is, but like the moments between him and Steve Carell are fantastic. There's one particular moment where he sees Steve Carell has Velcro shoes, and the look on his face is just priceless. Like this man who's all about how to look your best and how to appear your best, and he's he's just in disbelief. Like. You get this moment of like, I can't even believe a person like you functions in the world. I don't know. I don't know how you breathe and walk at the same time. And you get that all from a look. And I think Ryan Gosling is really good here. And it helps that he's got he's got someone goofy like Steve Carell to kind of play off of in this scene. But I think they work really well together. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I think they do. And it also comes that, you know, audiences, when they watch films, they come with the the baggage of of performances from you know actors past roles and stuff like that so i think it helps that steve carell had done a film like 40 year old virgin where he essentially portrays a very similar character in the sense that he's a sad 
individual who right. doesn't dress properly and stuff. Well, I mean, he dresses properly. He's got shirt and pants and shoes on. But I mean, he dress, covers himself, you know. but he doesn't dress properly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's talk about the theme now. So now we're moving into the theme of confidence. So I think um, the most obvious reference to this is uh, is you have Ryan Gosling kind of teaching Steve Carell how to be confident and how to how to interact with people in a new way than he's used to, because I think he's been kind of in this marriage so long that you get comfortable and this is just how I interact. And I don't. And in a lot of ways, sometimes when you're in a, a relationship for a long time, you don't have to put in as much effort as you do as when you're meeting new people. Because like whether mm. they already care about you or you've already impressed them, but these new people, they don't know you. So you can't talk about David Linhagen and expect people to have a good reaction. Uh, so all those sequences, of course, really hammer that home. But what I love about this movie is how that switches at the end where you feel like, you know, Ryan Gosling has been teaching Steve Carell and now he needs the other side of that. You know, like they even have that moment, like this whole time, apparently I've, I've wanted to be you like this, this is what I've really wanted. And I like how it comes to fruition and kind of connects those two storylines, how you have all these sequences of Ryan Gosling slapping Steve Carell to get him to pay attention. And I love that Steve Carell gets to give that back to him at the end of the film. Yeah. And, I, and I think, I think it works very well that way. It also works really well because in, you know, other films where, characters have a realization of what they've been searching for all along they break down in tears and all this kind of stuff and Gosling's character doesn't do that he realizes that's just another step in who he is as an individual which comes back to how confident he is as a as a person and you know one of the notes which I've written down is you know there's the confidence to be able to look as good as Ryan Gosling does and you know people who look as good as Ryan Gosling aren't always as confident in right. how they appear and how they present themselves. And, you know, Gosling sells that he, he manages to showcase that perfectly. And, you know, he's, he delivers the, the ability to show somebody who is confident in knowing that they're going to interrupt somebody's conversation that they're, you know, they're having a deep conversation with somebody else they're going to be able to come along, interrupt it, and know that they're going to go home with one of those women. And that's a – it's an impressive level of confidence, right. um, but it's also a kind of a frightening level as well because on the flip side, I think what Steve Carell's marriage has shown is that you can be overconfident to the point where mm. you think that things are going perfectly fine and you're unaware of the, the dangers and the – well, not danger – per se but the you know the the fracture that has occurred in the relationship because you're overconfident you think that you're actually doing pretty well right uh, because things are go you know there's still a house over your head people are still eating bills are getting paid you know things seem to be going fine we're having conversations and stuff and then blamo you know when you're asking what do you want for dessert your wife says you, she wants a divorce. Divorce. And it, and, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there definitely and, is a danger to being overconfident, to, to feeling like everything everything is fine because you don't know what's going on beneath the surface with other people. And the thing is as well is that Steve Carell's character, he's the epitome of somebody who is not overconfident. But surely there was a point in his life where he – and but we only know that because of his – post-divorce well post-breakup kind of 
uh, phase that he goes through, that he is certainly not a confident individual, that he this traumatic event has essentially dragged all that confidence out of his system. And I find that really interesting. Um, the you know, there's there's other examples of confidence in the film as well. Of course, the the confidence to leap out of a car and think that you're going to be all okay. But then mm, I don't think that s- qualifies. <laughs> well, it's a poor decision. Guts. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Decision. Yes. Yeah. Um, but the the confidence that you know Robbie has in his ability to you know just continually badger this poor girl into saying you know I love you and all this kind of stuff, but then which culminates in his ability to stand up in front of everybody he knows, all his classmates, his whole entire family, and and the girl's parents as well, and announce that he loves her then as well. And that takes supreme confidence, you know. It's, yeah, maybe too much. <laughs> yeah, again, it's overconfidence. Yeah. Don't be overconfident. That's it. Yeah, I also think there's a... Don't jump a, out of a car. Yeah, don't jump out of a car. That's good good life advice. <laughs> but I think there's also a, a character with quiet confidence, and that's Hannah. That's Emma Stone's character. Um, and I think that's the reason she's able to connect with Ryan Gosling's character, is that she is not snowed by by his game, where everyone else is, because she knows who she is, and she's confident in herself. Um, so, I mean, that's the reason she's able to shut him down in the beginning. And that's the reason she's able to start a relationship with him and kind of get inside where other, other women and other people haven't been able to. So I think there's a, a quiet, like, I think she probably has the, the healthiest level of confidence of any character in the film. I agree. And one of the other really honorable traits that she has is, you know, there is a point in the film where she feels that she is going to get proposed to in front of all of her friends and and co-workers and turns out to be something completely different and to have the confidence to be able to step away from that situation right there and then uh, with your head held high is you know it's it's sure she has a few gins in her but <laughs> that's kind of it's liquid confidence in a that's way that's right liquid courage and, right there that's <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it helps her it helps her get out yeah yeah yeah, totally agree. All right, so now we come to it, Andrew. We come to the end of our friendship, uh, and we talk about whether or not we're excited to see La La Land, because this is the movie I've been looking forward to all year, and I cannot wait. And let me preface this. One, it's got Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, and honestly, you could you could make any movie and put them in it, and I would go watch it. I'm I'm ready for that. I'm here for that. And the other thing is... I was raised on musicals. I love musicals. So this feels like an ode back to the kind of old school Hollywood musical that I love. And it also, you know, it's directed by Damien Chazelle, who did Whiplash. And the movie, at least from the trailers, looks beautiful, too. So what is it about this movie? After professing your love for Crazy Stupid Love, what is it that is not exciting about La La Land to you, you heartless bastard? Please, go ahead. Damien Chazelle's Whiplash was my number two film for that year. I think it's a great film. Um, but there it is. Every th- <laughs> I, I don't know why. I have no understanding why because I love musicals. I think musicals are fantastic. Just like you, I grew up on them. I, I really enjoy them. Um, you know, I enjoy Gosling and Emma Stone's uh, chemistry. I think they work well together. But for some reason... No, and on paper, this sounds like something I should be interested in. I agree. But for some reason, every time I watch a trailer, I feel like I'm about to fall asleep. Oh, and my God. I just, uh, 
Like, I, I honestly, we saw a, a trailer, and I thought that maybe if I see the trailer on the big screen, we saw a trailer for it in front of Lion the other day, and I was just like, okay. Oh, my God. I don't want to fall asleep before this film I'm enjoying. Something because- is wrong with you. Something is, Do you have narcolepsy? Something is wrong with you, Andrew. Because I see the, every time I see this trailer, I cannot help but smile. Like this, this would like everyone online apparently thinks I'm I'm mean to them and I'm snarky. Uh, if they saw me watching this trailer, that would completely ruin whatever internet rep I have because that's just I have a big goofy grin on my face. Like this is I cannot wait for this movie. And let me just say this before we leave: I eagerly await your handwritten apology to me when you see this movie and you can't help but love it and put it in your top ten this year. That's that's all. We'll see. We'll see. I'll be seeing it next week. Uh, you know, I think, I mean, for me, I'm looking forward to a film like Fences. So whenever I watch that trailer, I'm not smiling, but I hope I'm not. Getting, Jesus. <laughs> I'm getting the feeling that you feel that when you watch La La Land, not, not joy, but like, <laughs> wow, this looks so fantastic. You know, uh, Denzel Washington screaming at Viola Davis. I've been standing next to you too, and that kind of thing. That, all right, that all, right all right, settle down. We don't need a reenactment of the Fences trailer <laughs> from you. We'll wait till the Oscars for that. All right. Uh, so, despite the fact I want to hang up on you and never speak to you again, uh, why don't you tell people how they can uh, reach you on Twitter? Can Can I just say I forgot? Uh, no. I just <laughs> I was glancing through my notes, and for some reason I forgot to mention this during the script thing. One of the things I find really interesting about Crazy Stupid Love is that, uh, you know, um, what's his face? Steve Carell's character says, you know what word isn't used very much anymore? Cuckold. And I'm like, yeah, oh boy. You wait until 2016. (laughs) Yeah, I did think of that during the movie. Like, uh, we've just shortened it. We hear it a lot. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. Speaking of Twitter, Um, that's where you would hear that term. So exactly yeah so on twitter you can find me av film review that's where i talk the most uh you can also find me at the last new wave on twitter and on facebook and you can find episodes of the show on avfilmreview.com uh, yes that's it All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. The next time you hear my voice, if everything goes right and I can get my car to get me to San Francisco, then I will be doing an episode on La La Land with somebody, probably not Mike, but I don't know how that's going to work out. But I guess that's something to look forward to. Now, if you want to connect with the show, there are a bunch of ways you can do that. You can find my show and other great movie podcasts like the True Bromance Film Podcast and the Best and the Worst of the Best at followingfilms.com. If you want to talk to me on social media, we have a Facebook page and a Twitter page. Twitter is probably the best way. Just follow me at PC Case Study. And if you're a real person, I will follow you back and be happy to interact with you. But if you really want to help out more directly, you can go to patreon.com slash study, And there you can donate to the show on a per episode basis and you can get some cool rewards like I mentioned on Twitter or on the show where you can even pick the movie that we watch on the show if you donate enough. So that's a great way to support an independent podcast. So until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. And I'm not going to go in with, you know, ugh. Oh, <laughs> Sounds like you are. <laughs> I just, that, that, it's like, that sounds like somebody, you know, the kind of music that you put on to, you know, 
ease you into sleep. That kind of thing. No, no, you're wrong about everything. How can you be wrong about so many things? That's my job. Uh, the, yeah, well, fair enough. <laughs> the trailer for La La Land is better than the entire movie of War of the Worlds. That's all I'm saying. Just the trailer. I would watch that for two hours before I watch War of the Worlds again. See, for me, that the film that I'll watch, you know, if I want something to make me happy, is Young Adult. With- <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I just love that character. I think she's great. That's because you I mean, haven't met her in real life. I bet if you met her, you would fucking hate her. Oh, no, I've met people like her. I think that, you know, they are terrible people. But I love Shelley Theron's performance in that film. And I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's a really wonderful film. It's, it's just a great film. That and The Duke of Burgundy, which... No, you're not interested? I, no, I no. Know. I saw the first I one. Why would I be interested? I haven't Ugh. seen the first one, Fucking so garbage. You know, I've got nothing to gauge it on. But... I also don't like Dakota Johnson. I think she's trash. <gasps> I don't. I think she's terrible. <sighs> she's terrible. She's not good. You, she was the worst part you, of A Bigger Splash. Have you seen How to Be Single? Yeah, I have. It was fine. Disposable. Nothing. Really good. She can't carry really a movie. She's not a good romantic lead at all. I like that. They should have. No, I like it too, but they should have cast uh, Alison Brie instead. She would have been better. Eh. Dakota Johnson does nothing. Dakota Johnson to me always looks like she's bored. Like she looks like she's above whatever she's in. And that's not appealing to me. I disagree. But that worked for her biggest splash though. Oh, it did. She she wasn't bad in it. She was fine. But everyone else was amazing in it. Fucking Lala Land. No, you said it wrong. It's not... Fucking La La Land. It's fucking La La Land. This is great. It's, you've got it wrong. See, you've got the words right, but not the feeling, Andrew. At the, at the moment, it's the best film of 2017 for me. So, <laughs> well, <you> <laughs> how many of those have you seen, Andrew? Well, one, one two, so it's also okay. the worst as well. Yeah, see, see. 